0: June the 30th. Um, And so now that we've established that fact, um, it seems relevant to acknowledge that that means that today is the very last day um, for you to make a contribution to a ministry um, that runs on a fiscal year that ends on, well, ding, 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 June the 30th. Uh, This would be one of those ministries. And so if you've been thinking to yourself, hey, I really want to support the, the work of Faith Radio. Um, I not only want to be able to continue to enjoy the programming through Faith Radio and at myfaithradio.com and the Faith Radio app, but I want to help Faith Radio be ready to say yes to anything and everything that God might have planned for this coming year or the years to come. And so let me just go ahead and whet your appetite for a couple of the things that we already know that God has invited us. To do places where this ministry is going to expand. Maybe you have been praying for this ministry to expand to places like I don't know, Des Moines. Ding, ding, ding. Um, we are headed to Des Moines. Like we're gonna have. Am I right, Paul? I'm not speaking out of turn here. Yes. I'm right. I can say that. Right. I can say it out loud publicly. It, yeah. It is
1: coming. It's uh, still in the works. Hopefully by before the snow Some- flies.
0: Yeah, exactly. Our goal is before the snow flies. Yeah. So since we are not in charge of the weather, why don't you just go ahead and help us be able to, you know? Well, pray for early snow. No, don't pray for snow. no, no. So don't. Never mind. Ignore <laughs> that. Ignore that. Ignore that. Ignore that. Um, so we share this with you because um, God is really doing extraordinary things. We look forward to sharing with you about ways in which we at Faith Radio have been able to extend your gifts um, to build radio towers in places around the world. That's right, outside of the upper Midwest of the United States or across um, all the way to Hartford, Connecticut, but where we have been able to, by God's grace and your gifts, uh, really extend um, what God is doing through radio ministry in places Um, that are genuinely remote around the world. And that is really cool as well. So um, thank you in advance. Today is the last day of our fiscal year here at the Faith Radio Network, Northwestern Media. And so if you want to support us, just go to MyFaithRadio.com and do that. We obviously appreciate every single gift and every single one of of our givers. All right, um, stories today that I am following and I expect to see make pretty Um, splashy headlines tomorrow, so this is sort of like what you can anticipate in the headlines tomorrow that you could be watching today, Um, the stories from Surfside, Florida are beginning to be told. Uh, And so we are going to be hearing names like Harry Rosenberg. Um, Harry, uh, 52 years old, very recently moved to this beachfront condo in Florida after a much-needed change in scenery. He had an awful year. He lost his wife to cancer. He lost both of his parents to COVID. Um, he moved from New York to Surfside, and his daughter and son-in-law were with him for um, for Shabbat, and the building collapsed. So there are now three members of the Rosenberg family missing, I think at this point now, um, we can say presumed dead. And so we are going to hear lots and lots of, st- of stories like the story of Harry Rosenberg and his family. And so I just think we need to prepare ourselves. Um, and when you think about what happened and the kinds of stories that are going to come out, you know, there's just no way that when you hear uh, the story of a person like Harry Rosenberg, you're going to have thoughts of people like Job. You know, Job did lose members of his family in a house collapse Um and you know, it is it is important to recognize the level of grief and certainly the questions that people are going to be asking, not only about those who died, but about those who have survived. So, I just think that in terms of prayers, you know, today's day six, time is quickly, the time is quickly approaching when I think search and rescue will necessarily transition to search and recovery. So let's be praying for Families, friends, employers, neighbors, the community, the people whose condos look down on that scene from both sides, survivors, first responders, the layers of responsibility that are now being explored for the collapse—just on and on and on and on and on. Um, so let's be let's be praying on that front. One other thing that I'm watching today that we will likely talk about: Vice President uh, Kamala Harris is going to deliver her most high-profile speech. To date, she is going to address the United Nations Generation Equality Forum at the opening session of uh, of the U.N. meeting. She is going to speak alongside French President Emmanuel Macron, Mexico's uh, President Andreas Manuel López uh, Obrador, and the U.N. Secretary General. And so this is going to be a high-profile speech. She is slated to announce U.S. commitments— to addressing gender-based violence, economic justice, and sexual and reproductive rights. Note that last piece um, and, and, you know, prepare yourselves for me to make commentary probably on her comments tomorrow. All right. Bill English is up next. We've got a number of things to talk about. We're going to lead off with a conversation about the great resignation underway in America. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Again today, Bill English. You can find him at Bibleandbusiness.com. You can also find his book there, The Heart of Stewardship. Um, Bill, welcome back or welcome me back.
2: Well, well, I'm glad to be back. Nice to hear your voice again.
0: (laughs) It's nice to hear your voice as well. Um, Let's talk about the observation that some are making career experts believing that within the coming months, companies should expect a mass exodus of employees, people resigning in search of career opportunities that maybe align in ways with their desires and needs because they don't just want to go back to where they were prior to the pandemic?
2: Well, the job that they're going back to or the office that they're going back to is not the same office that they left, say, 14, 16, 18 months ago. So, yeah, that's what the surveys are saying. I do wonder about the efficacy of these surveys, but what the surveys are saying is that anywhere between 25 and 40 percent of workers are contemplating uh, making a transition on their own, quitting their job, finding something new. Look, they've had more than a year to reconsider their work-life balance, their career paths. And I think as as business is opening back up, many of them, uh, I'm not sure it'll be Forty percent. I would think it'd be more like in the fifteen percent range. Frankly, uh, we'll give their two weeks' notice, and and they're gonna make those changes that they've always been dreaming about, right? And and really, what's happening here? If you've ever, I, did you ever read a book called Seasons of a Man's Life? This is back in the eighties, right, by Daniel Levinson. Did you ever read that book? I did not. Okay, so it's a it's a sociological study on on how men. Progress through life, and what they found was that at that at the age forty transition, and women tended to have this too, uh, but at different ages. But for men, the age forty transition for men was usually the hardest, because that was when they started to realize that they had a limited number of years left on this earth, and so they reevaluated the major structures of their life. And they tended to make major changes between, forty, say, 38 to 45, somewhere in there. Maybe they changed jobs. Some of them changed wives. Some of them changed religions, those those kinds of things. I think something similar is happening here. People have had a chance to be away from the office. They've had a chance to work remotely. Maybe they've had um, either a reduction or a change in their responsibilities because of other people who have already left the company, And so they're really evaluating their life, not just as it relates to a job, but as it relates to what they want out of the job and are they personally happy in that job. And so these kinds of of fundamental evaluations about life structure and life trajectory are happening, I think, for a lot of people.
0: When you think about um, a person who might be contemplating that kind of choice, decision, What are some of the things that people should be thinking about that they might not just on their own consider? Like, you know, you have walked through this with a number of individuals. You've walked through this yourself. You know, you've sort of been there and done that. If somebody's contemplating leaving their current position, what what sort of things should they be thinking about?
2: Well, uh, several things. Boy, um, not too many thoughts in my head to keep track of them all. Uh, first of all, look back on the last 10 or 15 years and see what you liked about your life and see what you didn't like about your life and try to change the things that you didn't like, but hang on to the things that you did like, okay? But make it big stuff, not not the small stuff. Secondly, you're never going to find your happiness really in your job. Your job needs to be an expression of God's call on your life and an expression of your gifting and 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 the talent that God has given you. So if you're looking for your job to be fulfilling, it it can be to a certain level, but then after that, just recognize the limitations of how fulfilling any job can be. And so uh, be thinking about what really fulfills you. And, And to that end, I think people, every person, including you and I, Carmen, we need to have a transcendent purpose for what we really work for, something that's above us, beyond us, outside of us, and bigger than us, right? And that transcendent purpose gives our life core meaning. Now, for me, that is writing and teaching the Word of God, uh, bringing a transformative message to the the business owner and business leadership community. Um, And so, if if you can define and understand what the transcendent purpose is for your life and then align your job or your career with that, then that's when you're going to be incredibly fulfilled because, to my way of thinking, you'll be walking in the middle of God's will for you.
0: All right, we got to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Bill English from Bibleandbusiness.com, also the author of The Heart of Stewardship. We'll be right back.
1: I got an old choir singing in my soul. i got a sweet salvation
0: and it's beautiful. Got- Alright, everybody now has something to add to the file of things Carmen makes up when she's on air. Uh, <laughs> Bill English is actually the author of A Christian Theology of Business Ownership, an introduction for Christian entrepreneurs on what the Bible says about owning a business. Apparently, in my mind, um, you know, simply, simply about stewardship. Like, I don't know. I just, sometimes I just make stuff up, Bill. What can I tell you?
2: You know, everybody has days. Everybody has <laughs> days. That's, that's just how it is at the office, Carmen. And for you, the office is in front of, you know, a hundred thousand people.
0: I so. know. Let me, let me assure everyone <laughs> listening right now that I have no intention of leaving my job because I love what I get to do, and I thank you each and every day for the grace extended to me when I make stuff up. So, um, Bill, let's, uh, yes. let's talk about a, this is a, a completely different development happening out there in the world. I've been taking note of it, and now I have a headline that I can read associated with it, and that is a number of retail outlets of all varieties moving to a self-serve or self-checkout model to fill the void uh, because they just I mean, there's a million job openings in retail right now. And they're, you know, not apparently a million people that want retail jobs. So um, are you seeing that shift as well? And what do you think it portends for um, the employment market?
2: Uh, Yes, I'm seeing it. I think customers actually like it. I think that it's more, um, how do I say this, they can get through the line faster than having to wait for somebody to check somebody else out. Uh companies like it because it lowers their payroll and uh and they they can just put in machines th- that are made available for people to scan whatever it is they have. You know, I we do our shopping, can I say this on the air at Target? Can I say the name? Sure. Um and uh um I check out all the time on my own and I don't mind it a, a bit. So what is it portend for the labor market? It just it's just another one of those uh destructive capitalism developments where uh, people are going to have to retool to do something else other than checking people out in a um in a shopping line I guess
0: Okay so we talked yesterday um with a professor about cryptocurrency and I might have embarrassed myself on air with how little I understand about blockchain and um and other such things so Do you want to make any sort of general commentary about the way the way money and our and the way we think about money is actually changing?
2: I'm not prepared to talk about how we think about money, but I do think that cryptocurrency is eventually going to take hold because it is a more secure way to transfer value between two parties. And it's not, and this is the big thing, it's not government dependent or and it's not under government oversight. And that's going to be a huge, huge deal once it takes hold because the nefarious elements in our society, such as, as drug dealers or sex traffickers, uh, will be able to uh, engage in their um, professions, so to speak, uh, without government oversight on their financial transactions. And this is going to open up great possibilities for both um, uh, criminal activity as well as for um, legitimate business activity. And I'm frankly, right. honestly, honestly, I think it, it is part of setting the table for the Antichrist.
0: Well, which is something that a listener asked yesterday, and I— wasn't prepared to really fully think about. Um, and so I appreciate that you teed up that that thought as well. I, I do think that when we start talking about things that go beyond the scope of any one nation's ability to govern or provide oversight. Uh, and so when we talk about currency and we talk about a currency that does not require an attachment to any kind of nation state. We are talking about currencies that are obviously global. But when we're talking about the current state of cryptocurrency, we're not talking about one. We're talking about a an, an ever-burgeoning variety of them. and And I think you're right. It's going to take hold. It has already taken hold in emerging generations and in people groups around the world that don't have access to traditional banking. And so... You know, I think that we have the mind, we tend to have the mindset that money's always going to be what money's always been. Well, money hasn't always been the same thing. And the way that money works hasn't always worked the same way. And the currently almighty dollar hasn't always been even in existence, let alone almighty in terms of uh, uh, global currency. And so I, I do think those are the kinds of conversations going forward that everyone needs to be more prepared to have. And I was just admitting publicly that yesterday I wasn't really prepared to have it.
2: Well, this is something that we're going to be talking about for years to come. Um, You know, so much of the United States sovereignty in the world, or not sovereignty, but preeminence in the world, is based on the American dollar, that we are really the denomination of choice by most countries in the world. But once that Topple's and it will topple someday. It will change our economy and it will level the playing field. and And private companies will become the uh, preeminent um, entities, so to speak, political and economic entities with um, cryptocurrency. I
0: think it's another. Yeah, another
2: intense. I really don't. I don't either.
0: I don't either. But it is another example of the disintermediation that you and I have talked about in the past in several other areas and ways. And you know, I think that self-serve, self-checkout, that's disintermediation in the marketplace. Um and when we talk about cryptocurrency, that's not just a disruption. Um, it is a disintermediation and the 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 middle guy being moved out of the equation is actually the government, not just like big banks. Um, and so it's an interesting conversation going forward for us, um, you know as a people. So I, I, you and I are going to clearly be having more of that conversation because it's less embarrassing to say to you, I have no idea what we're talking about than it is for me to say that to a professor who's on the show for the first time.
2: <laughs> well, you know, you're among friends here, Carmen. <laughs> <I know. laughs> but you know connect I know the dots between connect the dots between free speech, security, political activity, and currency. All four of them are being radically transformed by private companies who are not subject to a traditional uh, country or um, political boundaries like the United States or Europe or, or, I'm not Europe, but Great Britain or, you know, China, whatever. So much of the fundamental structures of our society are changing because of the Internet and because of the ability to do things electronically. And uh, the next generation is going to have incredible opportunity to uh, share Christ and also incredible hurdles uh, to doing that as well.
0: As always, it's such um, it's such a joy to talk with you. Thank you for your willingness to just bounce around in subject matter that um, is relevant to all of us. And sometimes we don't tee up conversations with one another like this. And so I appreciate your willingness to do it. Um, Bill English from com. Also, I'm going to get it right this time. The author of A Christian Theology of Business Ownership, an introduction for Christian entrepreneurs on what the Bible says about owning a business. You can find out more at Bibleandbusiness.com. Thanks, Bill.
2: Thank you. Take care.
0: You too. It is that time of year. Kids are beginning. Kids. Students are beginning to prepare to head off to college or return to college. Some of them uh, to secular universities and Christian young people entering into those secular universities. You know, they got lots of exciting things to look forward to new relationships, new independence, new experiences. But college can also be a time of real personal testing, intense questioning, especially for Christian students. And so, We are going to talk next with Dr. Michael Kruger. His book is Surviving Religion 101, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College. That's next here on Mornings with Carmen.
3: This is Max Locato. Keep in mind we're all works in progress. God isn't finished, and some of his works, well, some of us need extra attention. Be the cheerleader who... Brings out the best, not the critic who points out the rest. You have a tool chest, encouraging words, a phrase of admonition, a warm greeting, genuine forgiveness, patience, kindness, and unselfishness. Do whatever it takes to bring out the best in others. Why? Because God is bringing out the best in you. Little by little, God is making a new you out of you. Your Father is following you, my friend. And on this journey of life and love, when you find it difficult to love the people who are hard to love, just pause and call out God's name. He's not about to let you walk this path without his help. This is Max Locato, and this is How Happiness Happens.
0: Michael Kruger is a seminary professor. He's the professor of New Testament of Early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's also the president. Um, He is a leading scholar in the origins and development of the New Testament canon. He blogs regularly at MichaelJKruger.com. Today, he also comes to us as a dad, the dad of college-age people. So we're talking about his brand-new book, Surviving Religion 101, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College. Michael Kruger, welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
1: Well, thanks. Great to be with you.
0: It's great to have you here. All right, UNC Chapel Hill was um, one of my two, like, stretch schools when I applied to college. I did not get in. I went to the University of Florida, decidedly secular institution. I was um, a a Christian, um, and fortunately, I fell in with other Christians at the University of Florida and therefore survived my secular academic experience. That is, that is the audience for this book, um, Surviving Religion 101. Talk with us about your experience entering in to UNC Chapel Hill, and then the timing of the writing of this book as your daughter daughter Emma was headed there.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this this book is special to me. It's really near and dear to my heart, perhaps in, in in a way no other book has been like for me, because it's a bit autobiographical, and it's a bit about my daughter. So I headed into college many years ago now as a freshman and experienced probably what you did and what it sounds like many Christian colleges experience, where they find themselves in a religion class, bombarded with ideas and concepts they've never heard before and don't really have answers to those. Um, That happened to me in a really acute way because the professor I had was Bart Ehrman, which some people might recognize as a very prolific author today and a very serious critic of Christianity. I had him back before anyone knew who he was, but he was very uh, tough on Christianity in the classroom. And I sat there and didn't have answers. And then I thought to myself, I wish I had something to read that would help me. And now 30 years later, my own daughter, Emma, heads off to UNC Chapel Hill um, to the same school I was at. And I said, you know what, it's time to write this book. And so um, thankfully, I got it written in time that she's still there, still benefiting from it. And it's been a blessing to see how it's helped her.
0: So I um, look back at my uh, at my university experience and I can say there was a group of people, people. that were involved in Young Life, that became my kind of core group. And there was also one professor who I'm pretty sure is secretly a believer, um, right? I mean, I'm sure he's a believer. And so, um, but let's talk about, I really, can we start with chapter two, and then we'll come back to, to the beginning? Because I feel like if people understand chapter two, my professors are really smart. Isn't it more likely that they're right and I'm wrong? For me, it was like the crux of my experience in college.
1: Yeah, that, that's interesting you say that because I've had many people comment on that chapter. And that chapter is a really critical chapter, which is why I front loaded it at the beginning of the book. And, and it hits on, I think, the, the biggest anxiety for students. People think that the thing that makes students so anxious is some fact they learned or some data point. And sometimes that's true. But actually, the thing that makes students most concerned is just the numbers game. They just look around and realize, wait a second, I'm vastly in the minority here. And on top of that, all my professors who are really smart think I'm crazy. What's the chance that, that I'm right in all of them? All of them are wrong. And that, that really haunts students. And I think that is a thing that, that really has to be answered. So I, I dealt with that early, and I just show, hey, that would be a valid concern if people form their beliefs based on data alone. If they you know, form their beliefs just on facts, then that would be a concerning trend. But what if people didn't form their beliefs that way? What if people believe things not because of of scientific reasons, but for other reasons, for the reasons based on their own assumptions and presuppositions and their worldviews? So I talk about that, how professors aren't neutral when they look at the data any more than we are, and that should give us a little bit of uh, relief over that concern.
0: All right, Michael, I'm now going to ask you the question that lots of people are thinking in their heads right now. Why in the world would Christian parents ever send their kids to a secular university today.
1: <laughs> yeah, I get that a lot. Well, there's all kinds of reasons. Um, one, one one thing I would say is is that the that there, there's 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 always a, an important point to make, which is that parents need to make that decision for their kid, for themselves, and everyone can make different decisions because there's different situations. Um, But I think there's a lot of good things that can happen at secular schools, because I've found, in my experience, not just as a student, but also watching people go through there, that they can have very rich Christian fellowships there. Sometimes, one might argue, even richer and and more bound together than perhaps at some Christian schools. Um, And Christians can find themselves growing in ways they may not have grown if they were in a a safe environment that didn't challenge them. And so I think there's, I mentioned this in the book, there's a lot of things about being in a tougher environment that make you a stronger, better Christian if, in fact, you respond well to it. So I think God can use secular universities in the life of believers. And, that's, and if, if, a, if a person wants to go to a Christian school, that's fine. too. I think all, obviously all options are on the table. I would say this, is that just be careful if someone heads off to a Christian school that it's really a Christian school, because there's lots of schools that say they're Christian schools, and they actually aren't that different than uh, a lot of secular schools.
0: Um, I can 100% concur with every observation you have just made. Um, that was certainly my own experience. I also feel like um, going to a secular university prepared me for the reality of living in a secular world as a Christian. Um, and I, because I, you know, the world is secular. And so, you know, going to the University of Florida and then um, to Princeton Seminary instead of to a seminary where I might have been uh, more safe. In my evangelical uh, expression of Christianity, um, you know, I I was definitely prepared for the conversations happening in the culture, the conversations happening um, in in spaces and places that I might not have otherwise understood. And I think that both of those environments equipped me to do what I do now, um, but also equipped me to live as a Christian, like, not only with conviction, but with genuine concern for secular people. Um, in the realities of the world today. So I'm, uh, I'm with you and for you um, in, that, in that observation. We're talking with Dr. Michael Kruger about Surviving Religion 101. It's his newest book, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College. Not just letters to any Christian student, by the way, letters to his daughter, Emma. And we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. We'll be right back. Well, Continue my conversation with Dr. Michael Kruger. You can um, find him at MichaelJKruger.com. One of the blogs you will find posted there is in reference to the question that he keeps being asked on uh, uh, on podcasts related to this book. And it is a question that is frequently asked, but a question that's not actually really the subject of the book, which I was intrigued by by the fact that a lot of people um, want to know, well, how do I prepare a Christian uh, you know, student for survival in a secular college? Well, frankly, if you didn't raise them that way, then they're not prepared. Like, you know, I'm not saying that it's too late, but the summer before your kid goes off to college isn't like the first time to crack open the Bible and start talking about living faithfully as a Christian in the midst of a secular environment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: Yeah. yeah. So I'm not going to ask you the question. I'm simply going to say, you know, hats off to you for uh, being willing to say hard things to people when hard things need to be said and truths need to be told. Like as Christian parents, this is a from the beginning uh, process. So um, in Surviving Religion 101, you address lots of common objections to the Christian faith. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, maybe in conversations that you've had with Emma, which one of these chapters has really struck a chord with her?
1: Yeah, this is, this is interesting. Um, Emma has, has just thrived at UNC, and I'm just so excited to see how she's grown and, 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 and prospered in a, in a tough environment. I think one of the challenges that she's faced the most, which won't be a surprise because I think most college students face it, is this problem of just claiming that Christianity is the, the only way to heaven, the only way to God, just the exclusive claims of Christ. Those, those never come across positively to our secular world. They sound immensely arrogant and conceited. And for anybody who you know, doesn't want to come across as offensive to people, that's a tough sell. And so uh, for her and just for any college student, I wrote a chapter trying to deal with that particular problem um, just to help them understand, look, when Christians claim that Jesus is the only way to heaven, it may sound arrogant, but it's not arrogant once you realize why we claim it. We don't claim it because we just happen to think Christianity is the best religion in the world, sort of like we're number one, we're number one or something like this. It's not like Christians woke up one day and said, hey, we really love our own religion. Let's just say it's the best or something like this. But rather, it all goes back to Jesus's own claims. We're just simply following and responding to what Jesus himself said. And so is it, you know, is it arrogant to follow Jesus? Is it arrogant to believe Jesus? No. I mean, if anybody has a, a, an ability to know how to get to heaven, I would put the bet on Jesus. And so Christians are merely submitting themselves to Jesus' own claims, and that's the, the furthest thing from being from being arrogant.
0: So if you're listening right now and you're thinking to yourself, wow, not only do I think that um, students who I know who are headed off to secular universities need this book, I'm betting there are lots of people listening right now thinking to themselves, I, I need this book. Um, I need to be equi- equipped to engage these secular challenges, and I need to be able to do so not only with intellectual honesty, but with compassion and confidence. So let me just say, Surviving Religion 101 uh, by Michael Kruger isn't really just for college students. Um, It's really for every Christian who recognizes the need to be able to um, winsomely and confidently engage in conversations in a secular and I would say ever more secularizing culture. Um, The chapters in this book cover everything from You know, the one that Michael just referred to, there's lots of different views. How can I say that Christianity is the only right religion? To a conversation about my Christian morals being viewed as hateful or intolerant by others. Conversations about having, you know, gay friends who are kind and wonderful and happy. Um, The concept of hell is addressed. The concept uh, or the reality of suffering. Science in in a conversation with uh, the claims of Scripture. I mean, on and on and on and on and on. Um, I want to address the postscript, Michael, before we run out of time, because I felt like what you say in the postscript is really hope producing for people who are right there on that um, edge. What do I do if it feels like Christianity just isn't working for me?
1: Yeah, this was an important chapter to end the book on. It's sort of a, as you put it, a postscript or an epilogue. Uh, one of the things I've learned over the last number of years, and this isn't revelatory or anything, but we all have seen it, and that is that a lot of people don't form their beliefs just on on the basis of truth anymore. We tend to think that people just believe things because they're true and don't believe things because they're false. But actually, lots of people accept or reject certain things just based on how it makes them feel or whether they find it satisfying or whether it's working for them. Um, and in our world, pragmatism is a big part of why people form their beliefs. And so I felt like I needed to address that as I closed out the book. Um, and what I said at the end is, first of all, you know, things aren't things aren't true just because they work. They, they work because they're true. Um, and so we got to make sure we get the order right. Um, but the, but sometimes Christianity doesn't feel like it's working. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it's satisfying. And I get that there's ups and downs in the Christian life. But what I remind people to do is the real reason you follow Christianity when all the dust settles is not based just on facts or data, although we have good facts and data, but it's based on a person. You've got to follow Jesus as an individual, as a person. You're, 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 you're basing your life on him, not just an idea or a philosophy. And if you realize that, then that'll carry you through. Because a lot of people stop believing because it's just a, an exercise of assent or a conviction to a set of truths when you forget that there's a real individual relationship there. And so I I emphasize that as a closeout of the book, because I think that's the real key to to persevering and surviving uh, in the Christian life.
0: So we have a listener um, who is now setting forth a challenge. I think this challenge is best put before you and Melissa together collaboratively. Could the two of you write a book on, like, how to do this in your home, preparing, you know, preparing your kids along the way for survival in secular education at all ages? So recognizing that, you know. Uh, public school is still where the overwhelming majority of students attend in this country, so uh, that is an interesting challenge. I think that you and Melissa would be up to it. You know, <laughs> she's awesome. I know you yeah, know this, but well, she's she awesome.
1: Is. That's uh, apparently the reader knows, or the, the whoever sent that in knows about her her really uh, great work. And yeah, I think that's an interesting idea for a book. We actually Melissa and I are actually co authoring our first book next year, which is a book on how to pray for your spouse. So it's a book kind mm. of kind of a Ozai book on marriage. It's praying for your spouse. But, but, uh, but I like that idea. And maybe, who knows, maybe we'll consider it. You know, it could be volume two of Surviving Religion 101.
0: That's, I think so. Um, so there you go. Michael Kruger, what a pleasure to talk with you today. Please give our greetings to Melissa. Um, we love her. We so enjoy her and what she's, what she's doing. Um, blessings uh, on you and your family and on Emma and the rest of the brood. Um, we look forward to talking with you again. I hope you'll come back.
1: Absolutely. Fun conversation. Thanks so much.
0: It's really delightful. All right. The book is Surviving Religion 101. You're looking for Michael Kruger. The place you can most easily find him is at his website, Michael J. Kruger, K-R-U-G-E-R, com. We'll be right back. All right. It is, the, uh, it is the proverbial end of the hour. So you, have, you and I have a day set before us. This is the day the Lord has made. So what will we make of it? What are we going to make of the day that the Lord has made? Will we rejoice and be glad in it? Will we uh, set our minds on things that are above? Will we look to and look for and think about and dwell on, point out, celebrate, and elevate whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just and noble, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy? Are we going to think about these things? God has equipped us with the very power of his Holy Spirit to be people who are enabled, equipped, empowered to live by faith, to live in Christ, to even live as Christ in the midst of the world that God so loves. Like you and I, on this day that the Lord has made, get to be representatives of Christ and his kingdom. We get to represent Christ to the world not only in word, but also in deed, in attitude, in the way we talk about things, the way we encounter, approach, and interact with other people. So, uh, you know, as the old sort of approach goes, what would Jesus do? It's a good question for us to ask. Not only what would Jesus do in this particular situation, but how would he do it? Not only... What would Jesus say in this situation, but how would he say it? You and I are representing Christ to a world in which he has been grossly misrepresented. And and in a world that frankly calls into question the reality of his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and future coming again. So let's get out there today and let's represent the truth of the gospel. To a world dying to know the love of God in Jesus Christ. His name be praised on this day and every day. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.